Slice of Medieval, where history meets historical fiction. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly, international best-selling author of historical non-fiction, mainly about women. And I'm Derek Burks, best-selling author of historical fiction. So Derek and I were talking about what we would talk about as our second episode. And we both decided we wanted to do the Wars of the Roses, and we were trying to find a new angle on a topic. And we started talking about the children, how it would have been for the children growing up in these Wars of the Roses, where every now and then you would get a series of battles and changes of regime and how much this might affect the children. We thought we would look into what childhood was like, especially for the girls and whether or not they are players or pawns in the Wars of the Roses. So first thing we were talking about was actually what was childhood like? Childhood wasn't as separated from adulthood as it is these days, was it, Derek? No, I think this thing called the teenage years and even childhood itself is a very modern idea. And for those who, I mean, obviously... I lived through most of the 50s, although I don't remember it very much, and the 60s. Um, and for those, for, for anybody listening, assuming somebody is listening, for anybody listening who has no direct knowledge of that, they could be forgiven for thinking that, that the idea of a teenager has, has lasted, has gone on for a lot longer than it actually has. And it didn't exist in the Middle Ages because... You were born into a family, whether it be a high-born or low-born family, and you were part of that family unit. You were part of the family business. If your family were was a farming family, then you did your bit. You did your chores related to that. If, however, you were born into a noble house or a royal family, again, you were part of the family business and you were expected to play your part in that. Yeah, so childhood is more like growing into the role or basically being a mini adult than actually, I'm sure the children were allowed to play because we've had, we see toys and that, but they weren't, because they didn't have school like our children have, they were more involved in the day-to-day running of the household, the business, the family. So they, um, they had, they were basically learning to be adults um, their entire childhood. Absolutely. And I, I think when we relate that to the Wars of the Roses, what we see is if we're looking at, at the girls exclusively, uh, we would look at them all, but there are just so many youngsters involved who become pivotal in this whole story of, of the Wars of the Roses. So just looking at the girls alone, we see individuals whose lives are planned out for them. But also from the perspective of those girls, they don't really know what's going to happen. The adults might, but they don't necessarily 
really know. Yeah, you think about Anne Mowbray, who was um, married to Richard, Duke of York at the age, what was she? She was five and he was four, or was it the other way around? And then the poor girl dies at the age of eight anyway. It's like, but they've got it, her life is planned out even practically before it's begun. Yes, and this was common amongst the nobility that you, you made alliances with other houses, other families, and the easiest way to make an alliance was to betroth your son or daughter to someone in another family. Yeah, and in some ways it was practical as well, because especially during a period of civil conflict like this was, that you're actually aligning yourself to another family through your children. But that means if you get killed on the battlefield, this other family also has an interest in looking after your children and making sure they grow up safe and sound in order to marry their child and continue the dynasty. Yes, it, it sort of makes sense. It's just such a contrast with modern life and, and the, all the attitudes <laughs> that we associate with young people. From the point of view of the, of the youngsters themselves, they would be pushing at the boundaries in the same way as our teenagers do today, but it would be in a different context. There would be there would be yeah, rebellious teenagers, if you like, but they wouldn't be seen as teenagers. No, their brain at the age of 16 is still the same as any child's brain now at the age of 16 in the way it's developed. And of course, when the wars of the roses start, you've got these periods where they have to grow up very quickly because it's war and um, a rather brutal one at that. The natural alliances that are made through marriages take on a, a new meaning if the country is at war with itself and the factions, yes. a faction is is formed in a sense through these links which have, which have always been taking place but when there is warfare the faction needs to be strong. Yeah and they, they do become a lot more significant don't they? Like when Margaret Beaufort's prime example when she married Edmund Tudor, she was marrying the king's brother. Some of these early marriages of, of young girls in this period took place before the Wars of the Roses started, and some took place whilst yeah. it was going on. And I guess there's a difference there of a sort. Marriage alliances which took place during the Wars of the Roses needed to hold together each faction, whereas before yeah. it was merely a means of making alliances. Yeah, it was family connections, whereas once the world of the roses start, it's political connections, like a spider's web spreading out these connections so that you're allying people not just to the family, but to the cause. Now, Margaret Beaufort then is, is an early example of a young girl who is treated pretty badly, actually, even by the standards of the day, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, she was, what, married at 12. And that wasn't her first marriage either, no. was it? Was it uh, John de la Pole she yes, was I married so, to first? Yes. But then when de la Pole's father, Suffolk, fell, the marriage was deemed inconvenient. And of course, because she was, hadn't been old enough to consent to the marriage, it was easily set aside so that a more useful marriage could be arranged. Actually, you raise an interesting point there about consent, because in the eyes of the church, in theory, if uh, a woman didn't consent to a marriage, then it, it wasn't legal. It wasn't it wasn't proper. But of course, if you're if you're 12 years old, you don't get a great deal of choice in the matter. No, you basically do what your parents tell you to do. But there was this idea that if they married before the age of 12, they, if they were married before then, then if when they reached the age of 12, they sort of had to reaffirm that marriage or deny it, you know, refuse to go ahead with it. I mean, 
if they did refuse, it was basically based on what their parents wanted even then. You know, the girls didn't really have much say. And I suppose you were guilted into it, if nothing else, because, you know, we've put a lot of effort into this. It's all arranged. The money's been paid. Church has been booked. <laughs> reception. <laughs> you know, Maybe we can contrast how Margaret Beaufort fared uh, alongside, say, Cecily Neville, who was also married at a young age. But her uh, treatment, if you like, was more the norm for the Middle Ages, whereas Margaret Beaufort was was really, well, abused almost by our, in our eyes. Yeah, well, she was married at 12, taken to bed straight away by her husband, and um, she was left as a 13-year-old widow giving birth on her own. I mean, anyone imagines a 13-year-old having to give birth, the poor woman, and it was a really difficult birth as well. It must have been petrifying for her. But then you have Cecily Neville, who her mother actually didn't have a slightly similar experience to Margaret Beaufort in that she was married at 14 and had her first child at 15 and her second at 16. Joan Neville, she was the daughter of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, and she seems to have decided that that wasn't going to happen to her children. And she sort of made sure that her daughters, even if they were married at 14 and 15, their husbands weren't going anywhere near them until they were 17 and old enough to bear children safely. Yes, of course, Margaret's son became rather significant in uh, in the history <laughs> of the country, let alone the Wars of the Roses. That's Henry Tudor, obviously. But I think as we go through the period, you've got a royal marriage which, where, where there's a 15-year-old girl involved, and that's, that's Henry VI marrying Margaret of Anjou. Yes. Th- that was... That was not unusual, really, was it? It wasn't. And you've got to feel for poor Margaret, because Margaret is often shown, seen as the bad guy in all of this, taking the man's role because her husband couldn't. So she took over as much as she could responsibility for ruling and running the war. Um, But like you say, she was a girl of 15 and she was French. She wasn't even English. So she was in a foreign country and sent over to this foreign country to marry a man who was mentally unstable and not the strongest person in any room. Yeah, I mean, Henry. Henry's a, a difficult one. I mean, what does mad mean? Yeah. It's not a helpful term, but he certainly no. w- was catatonic at times. I don't think he's a fool, but I do think that he, he was unable to communicate at times, and I don't think he had much experience of, of girls or women at all when he was married. Whilst he was a child and others were ruling for him, England was stable, but when he got to rule on his own, and then you throw into this mix, Margaret of Anjou, who the English didn't like the fact that she'd come without a dowry. There didn't seem to be any advantage to England to have her as queen. So that got her off on the wrong foot straight away. Yeah, I think she was a reasonably outspoken 15-year-old. I mean, obviously, the dreaded Shakespeare makes her out to be, in his words, a she-wolf. I think uh, one of the characters is, uh, is made to say that she has a tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. Now, at the time it was not intended as a compliment although actually I think it, it sounds pretty good, really, to have a tiger's heart. Yeah. But she she was, I think she was quite impressive in a way, considering how young she'd been when she was thrown into this 
Smith. Yeah. And when you think, when she did have a son, Edward of Westminster, it was during Henry's catatonic period, and she presented the young Edward to Henry, and he said, what was it? He must have been born of the Holy Spirit or something. <laughs> Poor woman presenting the son. He's supposed to acknowledge this child as his son in there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Margaret of Anjou is a good example of a young girl thrust into a situation where where men, military men particularly, had been yeah. to the fore. And her role, because of the almost absence of the king, was rather different from your average queen. Yes. And I think it showed a great deal of strength of character on her part. And of course, that's not always a, a favourable quality if uh, that character is working against you, as it was in the case of York, of course course. So yeah, Margaret of Anjou thrown into the maelstrom very young, very different experience, obviously, from Margaret Beaufort. So as we as we look at other well-known heiresses of the period, the ones that stand out for many reasons are the Warwick sisters, the daughters of the Earl of Warwick. Now they, Isabel Neville and Anne Neville, they were really thrown into the deep end as well, several times. Yeah, and they must have had a really interesting childhood because for the first few years, they would have probably had a bit more of a carefree childhood knowing that they were going to grow up um, marry and become another family's responsibility whilst whilst Richard and his wife their parents still thought they'd have a son yes it would have only been when they realized that these were the two heirs they had and there was no boy coming to take over the lands that they suddenly become um, a more interesting marriage prospect because with them come all the Warwick lands which are pretty extensive in those days, weren't they? Fast. And I mean, if you consider that Warwick himself, Richard Neville, had, had made the most advantageous marriage in history, virtually, yeah. he managed to pick up even more lands through his marriage. No one was more aware of the importance of marrying well than, than Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. So he would have... Yeah. As you say, once he realised there wasn't going to be a son and heir, and given his incredibly prominent position in the Yorkist government, he must have been thinking, right, I need to ensure that both my daughters are married to the most important men in the land. And of course, the most marriageable, available men in the land were the York brothers. Um, mm -hmm. Edward IV was already married, but his brothers George and Richard were, were the next cabs on the rank. And he never seems to have considered Edward IV for Isabel either does he because he was arranging he was trying to arrange Edward's marriage with Bonner of Savoy um, before he married Elizabeth Woodville or rather while he married Elizabeth Woodville <laughs> so it was the brothers of the king he was eyeing up rather than the king himself which is interesting I think yes maybe he realised it was a bridge too far yeah to marry one of them to the to the king I mean these two in particular but but really all of the women or young girls we're talking about one of the things that fascinates people I think is that because we don't know much about any of them we don't know much about their child we don't know much about them as adults, really. We don't, we certainly no. don't know. We don't know what most of them actually look like. We don't know what they were like as individuals. But because of all that ignorance, if you like, people can invent all sorts of things about them 
and nobody yeah. can say oh, well that's not true so they they have a kind of they have a life of their own now where people can interpret their actions the known actions in all sorts of different ways that's true actually because i always have this image of anne neville being a meek little girl who goes to marry edward of westminster and gets carted off to england with him has to sit and wait with margaret of anjou to hear the outcome of the battle at Tewkesbury and then is spirited away by George of Clarence and hidden away in a kitchen or a bakery or something so that Richard can't find her and depending on the story you read it's her and Richard is it's true love or Richard just marries her so that he can get half the Warwick lands. Yes and then again stories arise out of the fragments of knowledge we have and I mean both of them had pretty well not all the time but both of them had some pretty bad experiences in yeah. their youth. Poor Isabel and her first child. Well it's Isabel as many people may know fled with her father and her sister and at that point she happened to be heavily pregnant now a sea voyage when you're about to give birth is probably not a very good idea so not mm. only that but it was a very stormy crossing of the channel and she was she was literally about to give birth and they expected to land in Calais but they were refused entry to Calais not to mention a few cannon shots at them at the same time not exactly the most relaxing environment in which to give birth and and she lost the child and yeah. and of course Anne was with her as well so she was what around 14. So it must have been a traumatic experience for all of them I mean Isabel was only about was she 17 or something? I think so yes that would be about right. Uh, Anne 14 and watching this um, the only person experienced in childbirth would probably have been their mother. She didn't have the experience that a well-born lady would have expected to have of her first childbirth did she? It was totally totally different totally alien even at the time a totally alien place mm. uh, that she found herself in and I mean she had a pretty bad time of it in childbirth I mean she managed to give birth to living children but she died having given birth at the end and she was only 25 then yeah it's no age is it it's like I do wonder if George's erratic behavior started before then well I think it started before then didn't it where it seems to have been exacerbated by her death well, I'm inclined to think George's erratic behavior started when he was born <laughs> but uh, that would be a harsh view perhaps yes but of course after she died he he accused this woman of poisoning her and had the had the woman yeah. hanged there was that for which there seems to have been very little evidence yeah. i think he was just grieving madly and yeah. he was already yeah, could be. unstable <laughs> yes it, it wasn't great for anybody and then of course Anne, she has her own uh trials yeah. because when the earl of warwick her father decides to do a complete political about turn and ally himself with the she-wolf herself <laughs> margaret of anjou the one that that he has been vitriolic about for a number of years. He decides to ally himself with her, and Anne is the bargaining chip. Yeah, she's she's definitely a pawn in in that story, isn't she? It's like you will marry Edward of Westminster. And this girl, she's been a Yorkist her entire life. <laughs> she's suddenly told she's yeah. a Lancastrian. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to marry this lad. Uh, she's only she's only barely she's 15, yeah. I think, at that point. Um, so again, we're talking about incredibly young girls thrust into quite dire political circumstances and personal circumstances. Mm. 
And then her young husband goes off to England with, with her and her and her mother-in-law, Margaret of Anjou, and gets himself killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury. And then she's a widow at the age of 15. Yeah. And he was only 17, wasn't he? You know, we're talking about yeah. children here in war. Well, that's what we said at the start. We, we could have picked a hat full of yeah. boys as well who were thrust into these. So perhaps we'll do that another time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the girls were plucked out of a normal life and thrust into a supercharged life. It's quite incredible what happened to, well, Anne in particular, obviously, her rise to power, yeah. if you like, with Richard. This this whole Warwick inheritance when, when, he, when he died at Barnet, suddenly this whole Warwick inheritance, land that you could walk from one end of the country to the other, mm. a massive inheritance was all that anyone of any consequence was thinking about. If you were on the marriage market, you were a chap and you you would be you would want a piece of that. Yeah. And the ones that get it, the two brothers, George Duke of Clarence and Richard Duke of Gloucester, and share it between them, though neither is happy with that arrangement. Mm. But it's it's a story of the magnitude of that that inheritance. A big inheritance like that, a windfall, is something that people will do all sorts of very nasty things to get. Yes, definitely. We suppose, I guess, that uh, Anne, once she is married to Richard, Duke of Gloucester, has a rather more settled existence up until 1483, perhaps. And then it all starts to unravel for Richard and for her. Yeah, it must have been really hard for her. You do wonder, Richard must have spoken to her about whether or not he would take the throne. Well, did he? I mean, in those days, you didn't have to speak to your wife about things like this, did you? We just assumed that you would talk about something like that before actually doing it. Yeah, that's something we really can't fathom, isn't it? Because, Mm. I mean, we know that on some occasions, a man in that position might have confided in his wife, even sought her advice, and that would be natural for some men mm. but for other men then and now it wouldn't be natural they would think well it's got nothing to do with her I'm making this decision yeah. she can she can go along with it so and again it's not a medieval thing as such it's more of a a personality thing and b the state of the relationship between the two people isn't it yeah how much do we credit if that's the right word and with Richard's decision yeah I, I don't know I, I we'll never know that And I think it's one of those things we've sort of been trained to think of Richard and Anne's marriage as a love match. But it doesn't necessarily have to have been a love match. Richard could have just been interested in marrying Anne for her lands and the security it gave him as part of the Warwick inheritance. But because of historical fiction through the years, it's always been portrayed as a love match because he rescued her from his brother George. The whole love match story, and it is a story, There isn't actually any evidence, not a shred of evidence at all to suggest it. Mm. People say, oh, well, he was at Warwick. He would have known Anne when he was younger. Well, yes, he would. Whether he'd have regarded her in any way as worthy of conversation, I don't know at that age. (laughs) But also the whole thing, as you say, the, the, the idea of him of, of, the, of him rescuing her from the, the house of 
her sister Isabel and, and, and her husband George can be interpreted in a number of different ways. Maybe she was jumping rather than being pulled out. Mm-hmm. Maybe she would just wanted to get out. I mean, that couldn't have been that great a place to be uh, in the household of, of George, Duke of Clarence and Isabel. Yeah. And again, how old is she then? She must have been 16, perhaps. Yeah, I would have thought so. Couldn't have been much older than that. And basically, what do I do? What are my choices? Yeah. I'm still an heiress. I still have value to the important men of this country. She knows she's not going to stay single. She knows she's not going to be allowed to stay single. She has to marry because everybody wants her land. Somebody will kidnap her and force her to marry him if she doesn't take what Richard's offering. It's a good point that you make, and it's a point we haven't actually mentioned, is that (laughs) most of the time, girls didn't have a choice. They were going to marry, particularly girls who were heiresses. There there wasn't an alternative route. You know, they couldn't say, oh, well, I'm going to travel the world and find myself. They could maybe join a convent, but they'd have to be persuasive, especially the amount of land and property Isabel and Anne had. It wasn't going to be something that anyone around them would allow them to do. She had limited choices. She needed a husband who would protect her. And the only person, probably, apart from the king, who was already married, the only person who was powerful enough and motivated enough to protect her from George Duke of Clarence's grasping uh, clutches was his brother Richard. So it could have been a love match, who knows? But but the likelihood is that it was a practical choice on her part and his. So, yeah, the the, the Neville sisters, my goodness, they lived a lot in a short time. They did, didn't they? When you think Isabel was only 25, Anne wasn't much older, was she? When she died, no. Yeah, she was about the same. Same age, I think, wasn't she? Or 26, 27, 27, I think, maybe. Maybe 27. And of course, those last, the last few months, particularly, but even the last year or so, uh, the death of her only child, yeah. Edward of Middleham, in uh, 1484, was yes. that, I think? And then really the next year, the, next, the rest of her life, she becomes ill and so on and so forth. And there are all sorts of rumours about how she died. Did Richard poison her or whatever? I'm not convinced by that. But what does happen is another young heiress enters the whole field as it were around that time and that's Elizabeth the uh, daughter of the late Edward IV and she emerges as an important player in the game once her young brothers Edward V and Richard Duke of York are taken out of the game now we won't go into the whole can of worms no we're not doing that (laughs) who killed the princes were they killed did they live out their lives we're not going to go into that at all no. we're going to make the bizarre assumption that they were dead yes it's so. just easier to talk about these girls if we <laughs> assume some constants so elizabeth of york eldest daughter of the late king is in 1483 she is in sanctuary with her mother and her sisters yeah wow Who'd want to be cooped up in two rooms with Elizabeth Woodville and her younger sisters? Yeah, it must have been. And she was, what, 17, 18 at the time. So she's just this young woman who was just a few months ago the star of the royal court and is now in two rooms with her mum and her sisters waiting for news of what was happening outside. It's a heck of a change of circumstances for a princess. It is. It's a change of circumstances for 
for a, for a young girl as well. I mean, how many 17-year-old girls would want to be cooped up with uh, three or four younger sisters for a couple of years in a very small space? Mm. I don't think there's many, no. even now, who'd be able to cope. No, I think most of them would want to just go to their own room and everyone else yeah yeah but there wasn't their own room they didn't have their own room they were all together in two rooms and and it was a nightmare scenario i would have thought and of course at the same time they're worried because they don't know what's happening with edward and richard who uh, then put in the tower so it must have been a very fraught situation you know elizabeth woodville's got her daughters there and i can imagine she would have turned to elizabeth of york for consolation because being the eldest daughter and and practically an adult, she would have been the one she'd have been able to talk to rather than burden the younger children who wouldn't have understood anyway. It's a it's a lot of pressure on a young girl. Yeah, thanks, Mum. Thanks for putting that on me. Yeah, that <laughs> that's really <laughs> relaxing me a lot. Uh, so yeah and she is an heiress she is the one upon whom everything will fall she is the one who everything comes down on if her brothers are dead so she's got that pressure yeah as well hope for the future as well isn't she for elizabeth woodville um if she hasn't got her sons then she's got to put it all into her daughters yeah and the one like you say the heiress the one who the oldest one is the one that she pins all her hopes on now when they come out of sanctuary uh, and they they go back to the court elizabeth the younger elizabeth is a bit of a star because <laughs> the court has been somewhat starved of attractive royal young ladies and suddenly there's a whole coachload of them comes in mm. with elizabeth as the eldest and also there was even a chance years before that elizabeth wouldn't have been there by that point wasn't there because she was betrothed to the dauphin of France when she was just a baby and it was only a couple of years before Edward IV's death that the betrothal was finally dissolved so she could have been away and living in France years ago. (laughs) This is a good example again of how they are kind of the flotsam and jetsam of the medieval world they rock up where they rock up in the end and there's almost nothing they they themselves can do about it No, they just have to sit and wait and look presentable um, until a dashing husband comes along or not so dashing husband some of them didn't get dashing husbands that's for sure (laughs) at Christmas Christmas 1484 we have this bizarre story of the young Elizabeth and the Queen Anne exchanging clothes or or dressing the same I'm not sure wearing the same clothes weren't they wasn't it that Anne had a dress made for Elizabeth that was exactly the same as hers or something like that yeah but that's a bit bizarre as well, really. I mean, why would anybody do that? And why? It's just, it just seems very odd. Mm. But I don't think there's any doubt that Elizabeth does make an impact yeah. that Christmas at court and becomes more prominent as in the eyes of courtiers and so on than she yeah. had been up to that point. And that's the source of the rumours as well, isn't it? That- um, Richard wanted to marry her I think it's from that point Yes, you get yes. the stories when people start referring to it it's like oh well Anne was obviously grooming Elizabeth to replace her I don't know I think well that's pretty bizarre as well <laughs> Well, Anne must have probably knew she was poorly by that point and was maybe looking for an alternative wife for Richard. Or she was just looking for a friend because 
you know, there was only 10 years between her and Elizabeth. She'd lost her sister, Isabel, a few years before. Maybe she was just looking to be best friends with Elizabeth and trying to make a friendship. And it was just misread. And, and a bridge as well between, I mean, obviously yeah. there had been great hostility between Richard and uh, yep. Elizabeth Woodville and, and therefore her daughters. And so, queens traditionally did have this role of peacemaker. Yes, but it's not, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's been interpreted in that way, has it? No. No, it hasn't. I'm just thinking about it now, but um, it hasn't. I've never read it like that. But thinking about it now, queens were supposed to be peacemakers and, you know, stretch out the olive branch where a king wouldn't necessarily be able to do that because of his dignity and his pride. Yes. Um, but it was all right if his wife did it. Maybe it would be an interesting interpretation to follow. The, that's what she was doing, that she was, you know, stretching out the hand of friendship to Elizabeth and therefore Elizabeth's sisters and healing a very public rift. But it wasn't received like that, really, by, by the no. observers of the time, was it? And and no. is that because of the or everything that had gone before rather than what was there in front of them? I think possibly. There must have been so many prejudices yes. by that point and lines had been drawn and what had happened i mean you get this argument that the daughters wouldn't have come out of sanctuary if richard had killed the princes in the tower because elizabeth woodville wouldn't have put her daughters into the custody of the man who killed her sons but she did because he did order the death of one of her sons for definite richard gray so there was so much public animosity i don't think anything would have actually been able to be seen as healing the rift but if anyone was going to do it, then surely it would be Anne who could make the first move as queen to draw the girls in to the court. Yes. Well, one of the things that's often forgotten is that Richard, the, the whole of Richard III's reign is a nervous reign. Richard is yes. nervous and therefore Anne will be nervous. Certainly the Woodvilles are nervous because nobody yeah. quite knows how things are going to turn out. And, and you've got Elizabeth Woodville is making overtures or arrangements with Henry Tudor for him to marry Elizabeth. Anne wants to bring Elizabeth on side rather than her going over to the Tudor faction. So there's a lot at stake. So what you're suggesting, and I think it, it sounds good to me, is that but at the Christmas 1484, what we've got is an attempted uh, rapprochement, if you like, between the surviving Yorkist heirs and Richard III and, and his wife. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is they've got no children no legitimate heirs. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's possible Richard might yet have uh, an heir, but uh, at that point that he hasn't. So maybe they are trying to build or rebuild the royal family, if you like, and close ranks against Henry Tudor. But of course, if that is the case, it all falls apart soon yeah. <laughs> in 1485 because Anne then becomes ill or, or perhaps uh, is already ill and her illness gets worse. There's rumours, as there always are rumours at court, this is something that's often forgotten no matter what's going on there are rumors at court there are rumors at court mm -hmm. today now you know so i mean there were rumors there were always rumors and they didn't have social media so rumors tended to be spread by slower means but they were there still and one of the rumors that that really wouldn't go away in the spring of 1485 is that Richard III intended after the death of his wife he intended to marry Elizabeth of York his niece mm -hmm. 
And that, that rumour just ran and ran to the point where he was forced to deny it. Elizabeth was, was caught up in all that controversy as well. And some historical fiction writers have, of course, gone down the route of, well, she was madly in love with Richard. <laughs> and besotted with him and um, yeah. who wouldn't be because obviously he was a catch but there's no, again there is no evidence to support that at all uh, and I, I think the most likely stance for Elizabeth to take is survival mode or any of the any of these young women we've talked about so far really that they're, they're all in survival mode really from from even before they're married yes and they have very little control over what they're going to do with their lives it is very much their parents deciding who they're marrying if they're older it's still the men who decide whether or not they want to marry them and elizabeth has very little control uh, all she can do is try to stay aloof from it all i suppose so that she doesn't make the wrong move or give the wrong impression which it would be very easy to do of course yeah and then richard having denied the rumor is obviously worried because he knows by then that Henry Tudor will be invading. He doesn't know with how many men, he doesn't know where, but he knows Henry Tudor will be invading. He knows it's coming. He also knows that Elizabeth of York is Henry Tudor's intended bride. So he he has to sort of mm-hmm. stop that from being a possibility if he can. So he makes sure he's got Elizabeth and all the other young Yorkist heirs at Sheriff Hutton Castle in Yorkshire safely guarded. And that's where she is. That's where she mm-hmm. ends up in 1485. So in August 1485, while the Battle of Bosworth is unfolding, she's sitting in Sheriff Hutton Castle with several of her cousins, her young cousins, wondering whether she's soon to be the bride of the new king, Henry Tudor, or that she will be married off to somebody else or perhaps kept incarcerated for a long time. Well, yeah, because you do wonder. I mean, she was Richard was supposed to be arranging her marriage to a Portuguese prince or something, wasn't yeah. Well, you do wonder if Richard would have ever allowed that because she was the Yorkist heir and whoever married her would have a claim to the throne in her name. It's it's difficult. Um, I think for Richard, yes. the bigger advantage is to not marry her to anyone, like you say, to actually keep her in custody at court or close by so he can keep an eye on her and um, keep control of her. Well, look what, I mean, just to throw in a completely different person, um, another Margaret, look what happened to Isabel Neville's daughter, Margaret, who, because of her Yorkist blood, managed to survive quite a few years until Henry VIII decided that it was really too much of a risk to keep this, how old was she in her 60s? To keep this... 68-year-old woman alive, uh, even in prison. Mm. So, you know, it gives gives some sort of idea of the scale of the threat in 1485 if two generations later almost, one of her cousins, one of Elizabeth's cousins, was going to be executed just because she had Yorkist blood in her veins. It's it's staggering, really. And you look at the people that... Her sisters, the men that her sisters were married off to during the reign of Henry the Seventh, they were all unassuming men with little power or influence, yeah. so that they couldn't mount a challenge to the throne. Yeah. Henry the Seventh was pretty canny in that respect. I mean, 
I guess I don't know if maybe if I was one of those girls, I'd be quite glad of that because suddenly, you know, it's it's as near to a normal life, perhaps, as as any of them had had for quite a long time. We haven't talked about historical fiction a lot here today, but there are so many different takes on on all of these women, as I said earlier, because we don't know a great deal. There's so much scope for the historical novelist to basically make stuff up. Well, we do that all the time, but in the case of these girls I mean, some of them, you could say, have been pre- presented as the worst possible human being on the planet and at the same time by somebody <laughs> else as the best human being on the planet. I mean, Anne Neville could be, yeah. be either of those things. So could Elizabeth of York and certainly Margaret Beaufort. She she took a certain amount of stick from, his, from historical fiction writers and Margaret of Anjou. All of those have really been put through the grinder as far as historical fiction is concerned. And I think it's it's a lesson to us. And I say this as a writer of historical fiction. You can't believe what people write in historical fiction. Okay? <laughs> no. It's not a good place to start to get your facts. No. Some writers are more accurate than others, but at the end of the day, it's not their fault. They're trying to write a story that's interesting. So it's a different purpose. It is. Uh, I think it's interesting though we don't know a lot about these women but we know they were involved and we know a lot more about them than we do about women of other eras this is like you get in medieval in medieval times you get to know about the queens and some of the princesses but generally you don't have as wide a range of women who are actually part of the story you know in every element of the wars of the roses the women are actually there which i think is really is really is brilliant for me um, well they're pivotal aren't they they're yeah, pivotal exactly. to what happens um, yeah in and that is a bit more unusual. It's in very this unusual. In that era, it was, I think the only other time that a woman was as pivotal was the anarchy with, with the Empress Matilda. But these, in the Wars of the Roses, there were so many of them who, because of who they were and their inheritances, they actually come into the story and affect the outcome. It makes really interesting reading because of that. There's so many of them and usually you don't see so many of them being part of the game of chess that was the Wars of the Roses. I think um, it's not just a modern trend, although it is a modern trend, but it's not just a modern trend for people to want to label individuals periods, all sorts of things. You want a handy two or three words to to sum up what that person was. And so most of these women have have had those labels. I mentioned the the she-wolf one for Margaret of Anjou earlier, but but they are pigeonholed. They're they're put in a particular box and, and it's very hard for them to break out of it. They are, yeah, um, especially Margaret of Anjou and Margaret Beaufort. Yes. Instead of being seen as strong, influential women, they're seen uh, they're seen as strong, influential women, but in a negative. And you wouldn't have that if they'd been meek and mild and did as they were told and just sat in a corner sewing. <laughs> they would have been nice. But because they actually had to join the fight for the sakes of their children, they're seen as interfering and busybodies and it's horrible the way they're pigeonholed like that when all they're doing is trying to make sure that their children survive and that they survive well of course in in all these periods and i don't actually think it's a great deal different today uh maybe a bit any woman who has power any sort of power or influence is often regarded by most men as arrogant
violent, hostile, yeah. calculating, all the all the adjectives you want to think of that aren't very mm. pleasant, which are characteristics or character traits in a man, which would be seen as or presented in a slightly more strong. Yes, yeah, strong. And if you look at the people, you know, Matilda, you mentioned Isabella, Queen of Edward II. Any woman who mm. puts her head above the parapet is going to get shot at, basically. Yes. <laughs> and when you've got all these, they're not all powerful women necessarily that we've been talking about, but they are influential by their very, by their marriages, by their very presence. By their birth. Yeah, by their birth. And they're to be taken down if they get above their station. Sadly, in a way, but but it, it is a fact of life at that time. It is, yeah. I guess there are winners and losers amongst that group of five or so women that we've mentioned. But even those who win, if you like, in inverted commas, Anne Neville becomes queen. But really, I mean, her life as a whole from beginning to end is not that great. Margaret Beaufort sees her son eventually become king, but not until she's quite old and... It's not exactly a victory as such, is it? And so on. You know, Elizabeth of York becomes queen. I guess she's the only one in a sense, who maybe maybe has some kind of normality at the end of it all. But she's still Queen of England, I mean. Yeah, but she lost so much to become Queen of England as well. What we've tried to do today is to, is to present several prominent young girls in the period of the Wars of the Roses and discuss what their roles were and, and how that, what happened to them shaped other events and how they in turn were shaped by the events happening all around them and and also perhaps how fiction and for that matter history has not treated any of them particularly well no and i wonder how much that is because it was written down by chroniclers who had a certain way and had had a certain way of writing for so many years that suddenly we have this large number of women involved in the war um they don't know how to tell their story or integrate it into the major story that's happening you do wonder how there was so many of them and yet we still know so little i think um one of the things that uh, people might like to look at if they haven't ever looked at it before you can google it is susan higginbotham's article which is 10 rules for depicting margaret of anjou in historical fiction and i think it's worth looking at that <laughs> to get a feel for for why you should not believe everything you read oh that's brilliant um and um it sort of sums up um some of the issues that we face in in coming to terms with what these girls were like mm. and how we interpret what they did and what happened to them. I think we also, what we've talked about at the beginning about teenage years, you have to highlight the fact that Margaret Beaufort was 12 when she married, 13 when she had a child, Margaret Banjou, 15 when she married, and Neville, 14 when she saw her sister lose a baby, 15 when she married the first husband. I mean, she'd had two husbands by the time she was about 18, the poor girl. And Isabel, then 25 they lived so much in such short lives um it's hard to comprehend how much they managed to get into such a short period of time especially Isabel and Anne Neville they weren't on this earth for very long and yet they made such an impact and we're still talking about them now yeah exactly okay so the only other thing I would say is if you want to find out some more about the Wars of the Roses I've done 46 podcasts very short podcasts on the whole of the Wars of the Roses. I can highly recommend them. I enjoyed listening to those. <laughs> well, they've been well received by students trying to find <laughs> their way, navigate a path through the Wars of the Roses. 
but they're free and they can be accessed from my website or other podcast providers. Now that's the advert over with. So we'd better wrap it up. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Do join us next time when we'll be talking to novelist Ben Kane about his Richard the Lionheart trilogy. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. If you want to read any more about me, then do look up my blog, historytheinterestingbit.com, and have a read. And I'm Derek Burks. If you want to find out any more about my books or all the history surrounding my books, then you can have a look at my website, www.derekburks.com. Bye for now. Bye-bye. 